Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Gerard Smith, Vice President and Head of Product Digital Assets at NASDAQ Market Technology, which he joined in June 2022 after three years heading post-trade at Hong Kong Clearing and 10 years in collateral management services at LCH Clearnet. A starting point for our discussion today is the global survey of post-trade developments that NASDAQ has just published with Value Exchange. Gerard, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Dominic. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Gerard, you're an expert in uh, managing change. One of the things that comes out of the the NASDAQ value exchange survey is that most financial market infrastructures are still running on legacy systems. And those legacy systems are eating, and this is a, the percentage cited by the survey, 75, 78% uh, of their budgets. Uh, the survey also finds that most of those FMIs are looking at a major system overhaul in the next five years. I, I wonder whether those two statements are contradictory. Uh, is technological transformation actually possible when roughly 80% of your budget is being eaten by your legacy systems, but you know that you need to change? Uh, is there a contradiction here between the need to change and uh, the budgetary constraints? Yeah, I think there probably is. But if, if we break that number down, so that, that high number, um, 78%, if we, if we break that down, there's about 45% of that is spent on um, improving and supporting existing systems and the rest about 30 35 percent um, spent on uh what we would call uh transformation so replatforming and, and replacing um but the you know in some of some of those systems are over 10 years old and, and many of those systems in some cases are over 20 years old especially when it comes to components like uh settlement and corporate actions um but the big picture is that, you know, not a lot of um, resources is available for um, innovation and growth. Um, so people are dealing with regulatory change. They're dealing with things like uh, mandatory change as well, things like T plus one, for example. Um, so overall, it, it, it's kind of uh, difficult to, to focus your capital expenditure on, on growth and innovation um, in such an environment. So, uh, you know, the, it's also difficult to kind of like create business cases for growth and innovation when the cost of changing your legacy platform um, is so high and often people are reluctant to change those platforms um, because they're scared of breaking them. Um, so, you know, in that kind of context, you know, transformation um, is a must. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I think the kind of like the high number spent on kind of like basically just maintaining legacy systems that speaks for itself. There's little room for anything else at the moment. Anyway, it sounds like it's difficult to do things uh, for internal reasons. And then, of course, there's the, the customers, the users. And there's a, a, a rather fun quote in the NASDAQ Value Exchange Survey, which oh, I enjoyed it anyway, from an official at an exchange uh, who explained that, uh, and I'll quote directly, when we launched our new ISO 20022 corporate action feed, the first market participant we spoke to asked if we could make it look like ISO 15022. Uh, so th 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 that anecdote illustrates one of the messages out of the survey, which is that the users, by which I mean, in the case of exchanges, domestic brokers, in the cases of, of CSDs, you know, subcustodian banks, uh, those are also a constraint on 
technological transformation of the financial market infrastructure simply because uh, they don't want to have to invest in, say, a new interface. Is there a is there a way of getting around that reluctance to invest on the part of users and customers? Well, I, look, I think there, there's two sides to this, obviously. So um, perhaps FMIs haven't done a great job of explaining the benefits of certain changes that they're making to their participants, and therefore um, you, you end up with with quotes like that. Um, uh, but but often FMIs are in a kind of favourable competitive position, um, and that I I find sometimes um, means that there is a reluctance to change and a reluctance to kind of like disrupt the markets that they've been you know running for many many years. And then on the other side, um, some participants are reluctant to change. You know, if if your FMI is telling you that you know that there's a significant upgrade that you need to, or you know innovation within their particular market. And you're running on old legacy systems, then perhaps the cost of change for that um, is very high, um, and perhaps the, the benefit that you perceive from that is is you know doesn't justify uh, the cost. So the, the, there's often two sides to to that. But you know if you think about think about this in terms of the future, how do you get over that problem? Then obviously you need modular systems, you need real time systems, you need API driven systems. And you need, from a from a market um, from an FMI perspective, you you'd be better to have small, uh, frequent changes that are easier for your participants to adapt to and easier for them to um, accept. But obviously, you need to go through a kind of transformation first before you're able to um, be able to deploy a system like that and to be able to have that kind of change cycle, rather than, you know, large multi-year projects that. Um, uh, uh, are quite disruptive and, and eat up the budgets of your participants. This question is related to, to the to the previous question, and it's based, I suppose, on my experience, particularly of talking to international subcustodian networks uh, about their relationship with CSDs um, around the world. And it strikes me that maybe users like that are as a group speaking with forked tongue They're, they complain that that financial market infrastructures don't standardize uh, their connectivity or their processes so they're always having to adapt to, to local factors you know if you're a, a bank working in 60 or 70 markets you're always having to uh, adapt to different interfaces to the local csd for example and that drives up their costs and therefore they're unhappy uh, but at the same time you have this this group of users who want everything to say the same but anyway is it fair that the, the complaint that uh, that fmis are not always responding as they should to the demands of their international customers to standardize say the interface to the system yeah i i think i think again it's kind of like you there are two camps here there are fmis that kind of actively engage with their market participants, they have user groups and they have, you know, um, committees and governance that make sure that whatever they're doing is accepted by the participants and um, and, and the participants feel like they have a say in, in, in what's happening. Um, and then on the other side, there are FMIs that maybe are on old um, legacy, um, you know, uh, mainframe systems that are, find it difficult to change. And, and there you get this situation where um 
you know, they, they don't invite change because they know the change will be costly and disruptive for their markets and, and they don't want to raise expectations that, you know, if you if you if you're open to change, then you kind of open the floodgates to a whole load of requests from your participants that um, um, you can't necessarily meet. So I think there are you know two camps there, and it's probably quite specific um, to the market. Um, uh, you know, I, it is a difficult question to to answer. But you know, ultimately, um, everybody will agree that you need to move towards kind of standard ways of communicating. Um, in securities markets, so um, CSDs that kind of have um, swift interfaces and, and use ISO 200222, or or even or even you know you know getting rid of kind of bespoke interfaces, moving to 15022 or 20022 um, is overall a good thing and you know something to be encouraged. And ultimately, that might mean going through a lot of pain to get there, but um, that's going to end up you you everyone's going to end up in a better place if that happens. One of the findings from your um, survey with, with Value Exchange uh, delighted me, but it also surprised me, which is that uh, the number of people inside these organizations, these FMIs, that actually understand how things work. In other words, they know how to settle a trade, they know how to interpret a, a corporate action uh, without technology. Uh, those sort of analog-minded people uh, the expertise that they embodied in their in their careers and their experience has disappeared or they've been in a sense uh the people operating systems inside fmis have been dumbed down if you like uh i was delighted by that because um i've been around a long time myself but i was also surprised by it uh was i right to be surprised and and if 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 i'm not right to be surprised what does that imply for operational resilience if all the people who know how things really work when you're not using a system have disappeared from the industry is that a is that a problem um, you could put it that way but i i prefer to think of um operations as the kind of the glue that holds the business together um right so these are the people that um you can see them as uh you know human apis they're the people that um you know can join up disparate systems by by doing rekeying and by doing four eyes checks and uh, and making sure that everything kind of like on a day-to-day -day basis hangs together. And often those people are the people that know um, the business of what they're doing and not just, you know, like following a daily checklist or, or procedure. So, you know, it's, impo it's important to have those people around, especially when you're um, embarking on a, on a transformation, because, you know, if you've, if you've got a, um, a, a team of robots, then, Obviously, they, they know what they have to do day to day to make things work, but they don't know the reason why um, why they're doing it. Um, and I think, but ultimately, having having people around um, that know those systems and processes and the business reason they're doing things, you know, gives an element of flexibility um, when making change uh, and when making plans and when doing new things. You may you may start off doing something in a in a kind of controlled manual way, and then um, uh, in order to get something live and then um, replace that with uh, uh, with an automated um, way of doing it. And I think it's really important because the, there's obviously a lot more focus from regulators on um, resilience um, and systems that are SDP are more resilient than systems that hang together from people rekeying and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, and, and, and we've also seen... Um, you know, the rise of kind of um, more uh, robotic process um, 
kind of implementations. Perhaps in the future we'll see um, AI play a role um, in here. But um, you know, there is a there is a risk there that we have aging systems and we have aging people um, that know how to work them. Um, uh, they're getting old and retiring, and and that can be a big issue. You just mentioned artificial intelligence, which is the ultimate form of robotization, I suppose. Is AI in the in the FMI space, at least, is it overhyped or are there concrete use cases? One we often hear about is the ability to predict settlement failure, for example. But do you see that as a genuine use case? And do you see other use cases for AI? I think I think with with AI, as with other new technology, there's always that hype um, curve. Um, I'm not sure where we're on it um, at the moment. I think we're kind of perhaps at the beginning of that. But um, you know, it, it, here at NASDAQ, we're exploring ways of using um, AI, um, one, to speed up the way that in which we do development, um, and two, we're kind of exploring how we would introduce um, AI into our various products. Um, um, so you know, as, as, a, as a head of product, we're, we're definitely looking at ways in which we can um, introduce AI. But you know, that, that was a good example that you gave. Perhaps we can, um, you know, use AI to predict settlement fails or, or to perhaps predict um, how we can um, use large data sets like transactions that are um, queuing up for settlement in order to be able to optimize the way in which we do um, settlement in the future. Um, but, you know, what is, what's really important for, for corporates and FMIs and everybody is to make sure that they have governance around the way that they use AI um, so that you know any adoption of AI within their firm can be done in a safe and resilient way. Something else the the Nasdaq Value Exchange Survey picked up is that uh, financial market infrastructures are concerned about regulation. That that surprised me in the sense I felt we'd passed the high watermark of the re-regulation of financial services after the the Great Financial Crisis of two thousand seven two thousand eight. So I wondered if you think that by citing regulation, the respondents really are worrying about the transition to, to T plus one. My question A is, do you think that's what they mean by regulation? And, and B, is the transition to T plus one becoming an excuse for not investing in other forms of technological transformation? We've got to throw the whole budget at this urgent priority. I, I think from, from the survey, I think we bucketed together um, regulatory change and mandatory change. So mm -hmm. T plus one would kind of fall into that bucket of um, mandatory change. And, you know, T plus one is a really um, good example of, you know, a change that is impacting the whole value chain, right from asset manager to broker, um, right through to kind of global local custodians down to the down to the CSD its it impact is, is quite profound on all of those um, uh, places so I think it's important um, that you know systems that people are assessing at the moment to to see whether they can cope with the T plus one I think you know if those systems are real-time and event driven I think that will be um, less change for the firms that have implemented those um, types of systems. Um, ultimately, um, you know, but but on the other hand, you know, you know, we talk about T plus one as a as a major change across the industry, and it is no doubt that is. But we have done it before. You know, India is already on T plus one, um, and for many years, people have been dealing in the um, 
the China market, which is the second biggest equities market um, in the world, which is a T plus zero environment. So, you know, at the end of the trading day, you've got about four hours in which to, you know, settle all your trades. So I think that there can we can learn lessons from the way in which um, firms have managed to cope with T plus zero um, in China, you know, mostly done through the Hong Kong Connect uh, product. Um, we should learn from that and we should see what the kind of um, the consequences of moving to those, uh, moving to an accelerated um, uh, settlement time has, has meant in those markets. Um, and, and if you're really interested in, in that, I try to draw some comparisons between, you know, how it works in, in, in Hong Kong and China um, uh, in term, and I set those kind of like the challenges and the the consequences out in a, in a paper that we published um, back towards the beginning of the year. So um, highly recommend that, um, even if it was uh, even if it was written by myself. <laughs> Always boost your own work. I've made it a rule of life. <laughs> um, Just blowing my own trumpet. Yeah. Uh, I, and I guess T plus zero is the is the destination towards which we are ultimately. Um, trending yeah but you know there's a um that you know, you know it's great when people start saying okay we're moving to two plus one and that's great and what a great thing that is and because you know ultimately you pay one day's less margin at the clearinghouse and isn't that brilliant but you know i was just discussing this the other day and one of the consequences of that is you know if you're a firm in europe um dealing in u.s markets then you need to do effects in order to have the dollars available in order to settle those trades Mm. Uh, and and you know if you do an FX swap, then that will typically go through CLS, um, you know, which means less risk, um, less counterparty settlement risk. Um, but you know if you, you're doing those FX swaps in future, because we've moved to two plus one, those FX swaps can't go through CLS anymore. So um, you may have you know lowered your initial margin requirement um, in the US, but now you've got settlement um, risk against your FX counterparty. So, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention all the system changes that go with it. So you, you know there are there are consequences of um, uh, the, of moving to T plus one that um, are market wide and should be um, you know thoroughly uh, um, analysed and thought through before making a move like that. And I guess compromises will will have to be made. Which brings me to a to sort of broader question about about compromise. You mentioned in one of your earlier comments that it's better to make lots of small changes frequently than try and bet the bank or the the CSD or the exchange on one giant leap into a technological future. So inevitably, technology is going to be at various stages of development in in different parts of your business and different parts of your interactions with different client groups. So is there a is there a an obvious viable sort of technical compromise between legacy or traditional technologies and the technologies of the future, by which I mean blockchains, distributed networks, centralized networks, mm -hmm. uh, smart contracts, AI. Or is, is there a stable technical compromise which, which is visible and can be arrived at all that vary from firm to firm? Yeah, I, I think there is. And, and, and that's the kind of philosophy that we've been or we'll be driving here at NASDAQ with respect to the work that I'm doing on, on, on digital assets and, and, and on carbon as well. Um, and so the key to this is flexibility. Um, so I like to think of um, the platform that, that we're creating as, as having three different layers. First of all, there's the application layer, which is driven by smart contracts. That's a given. 
Secondly, there's the DLT layer. So there you start having um, options. So when you speak to the customer about what they're seeking to achieve, you need to talk about two things. You need to talk about the DLT layer and you need to talk about the actual ledger underneath it. So at the DLT layer, there's a choice. Do you want to have a single node or do you want to have multiple nodes because you want to distribute processing in this particular workflow or this particular process? So that, that's, a, that's a question. Um, and then finally, there's the, the ledger layer. So the option there is, do you want to um, run smart contracts um, on a database um, or do you want to run it on an enterprise blockchain? Um, so there are choices in how you how you you know begin to deploy the technology, and and often it's a question um, of what is the use case and what's most appropriate appropriate in terms of the technology and how you deploy it. Uh, and secondly, um, cost comes into this. You know, if you want to distribute nodes and if you want to run on an enterprise blockchain, then obviously the cost is higher than if you have a single node and and run on a database. Um, so, you know, it, it, so my plan is that the platform that we deploy for, for digital assets, for um, issuance, settlement and custody of those assets gives the customer those types of, um, uh, well, we have that, that conversation with the customer and the customer understands the options that they have. And maybe they want to start that journey um, with smart contracts on a single node and on a database, but that doesn't prevent them from moving to a more distributed topology um, and enterprise blockchain at a later stage if that's what they want to do. Since you've brought up blockchain and digital assets, could we talk a bit about, about tokenization? And this is another area where a compromise, I suppose, is emerging in which assets, existing asset classes are being tokenized, what I'd call asset-backed tokens. So the underlying infrastructure and intermediaries remain in place and you're just making it easier to move uh, assets and, and, and cash around. And that is distinct from the ultimate genuine form of, of, of tokenization in which every asset, whether it's debt or equity or a commodity or whatever it is, is tokenized and isn't available in any other form. So it's a genuine native token issuance. Do you think that this, what I'm describing here as a transitional stage, which we go from asset-backed tokenization, but our ultimate goal is to move towards native token issuance. Is that transitional stage um, either necessary or um, is it slowing things down? Should we be being more ambitious about trying to move to a tokenized future? That, that that's a that's a tricky question, Dominic. And I, I think um, I think you're probably right on the right track. Um, I don't think it makes sense to you know try and boil the ocean by introducing native tokens across an entire ecosystem. I'm not sure how you would go about uh, doing that. Um, so what we see a lot in the industry is is people beginning to introduce. Um, asset-backed tokens and people beginning to introduce the technology into areas of their um, value chain workflow um, that are less disruptive for the participants of that particular um, ecosystem. So I think it makes absolute sense to make a start and to um, make that start in areas that are least disruptive to your ecosystem. Um, and as your competence builds, 
Um, and as the industry evolves and as ecosystems begin to um, be created or, 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 or ecosystems that exist begin to be transformed and, and replaced, um, I, I think we'll see that, that. I think that's the kind of evolution that we'll see. So it's it, it's more evolution than, than revolution, as they say. Um, but what's really uh, important is that market participants begin to adopt the technology that, that FMIs are uh, deploying. So I, I think that, um, you know, from a purist point of view, you should be going directly to uh, native token issuance. But think about that with respect to the entire ecosystem um, of, let's say, a bond. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's completely disruptive to um, the entire um, FMI community. And you, you need to start small and, and, and take baby steps and, and continue that journey um, in, a, in a sensible way. Something that has emerged as an obstacle to progress on the path to, to tokenization is interoperability. And not just interoperability between the various different layer one blockchain protocols, but between blockchain networks and traditional networks, particularly if we're going to have a prolonged transition where the old world uh, stays in place for a prolonged period of time. Now, is the solution to that interoperability an old-fashioned, equally old-fashioned solution, i.e. standards, a sort of swift, fixed-style message standards, or is it something new? Uh, and the term I applying to this would be interoperability by design, by which I mean that every asset which is introduced onto one of these blockchain networks is uh, designed, if you like, it's issued, it's traded, it's custodied, it's serviced in, in a common technical uh, digital um, format or shape. So, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm expressing interoperability by design very well, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Is it is it standardized exchanges of data or is it to somehow build interoperability into the very design of the things that are being issued and traded and custodied? But I, I think um, I think by default people are thinking in that way already. Um, so I mean, look, look, ultimately, I think a world without adapters and translators um, all over the place to allow interoperability between lots of disparate systems um, would be a great thing. Um, but at the same time, I can't imagine that one standard will um, will win. Um, so perhaps we'll have one dominant standard that's a kind of you know a benevolent standard that you know everybody you know doesn't have a an axe to grind about about using. Um, but ultimately, interoperability is is inevitable um, as well. So um, you know, and, and I think that. Um, People are thinking about that in terms of um, and designing that way um, already to to ensure that whatever they what they build can can interoperate um, across different different blockchains. So you know we see that especially when it comes to securities and payments. You know, often um, a securities infrastructure may be built on one set on, on a certain blockchain, but the payments infrastructure is built on something completely different. Um, and there have been lots of use cases where people have proved out. Um, that you can achieve DVP um, across different blockchain systems. Um, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a huge problem, but ultimately it would be better if um, there were, there were, if we move towards a common a common standard. But um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's uh, achievable. 
You mentioned that that tokenization initiatives are tending to focus on areas where the disruption will be minimal uh, and the returns are likely to be highest. And one of the areas which you see that very phenomenon happening is securities financing. And securities financing matters because it's uh, how banks fund themselves. And it is obviously with rising interest rates getting more and more expensive to, to fund a bank. And so we see uh, multiple tokenization initiatives aimed at that that area. We've got the JP Morgan Onyx intraday repo uh, using the JPM uh, coin that their tokenized deposit. HKLAX has has published a you know a collateral management platform. Broadridge has a repo platform which is attracting business. We've got a currency swap platform from from Fintium. We've got uh, Fragmos with this initiative in in unclear derivative processing but but so there's multiple initiatives they're all a bit fragmented they're not really achieving scale uh, and certainly not scale on a on a global uh, level is there some way that you can see where the the almost palpable savings in terms of cash collateral capital um can be unlocked on a global scale um i guess firstly it, it's not necessarily an issue of the adoption of the technology or the deployment of the technology. I mean, in, in certain of these cases, we're, we're talking about kind of cross-jurisdictional capital flows, and there's an enormous amount of legal and regulatory work that needs to be undertaken by, um, by firms in order to ensure that there is a, a sound legal basis, you, you know, and that bankruptcy rules and default scenarios are fully understood before um, these things can progress and that's not something that happens uh, quickly and you know regulators are um, definitely involved and uh, you know trying to understand what the technology means for their FMI ecosystems etc but and often the technology is you know you know developing at such a pace that it's difficult to to, to keep up whether you're a regulator or not um, so that's one kind of like barrier that you know slows down um, the innovation and, and whatnot. But it's an important um, thing that needs to be considered, and not something that can necessarily happen very quickly. And and secondly, we need to think about um, you know cap capital markets are a really interconnected uh, ecosystem. So whilst you get these examples and and pockets of solutions that bring efficiencies to kind of discrete areas, um, there's often a need for increased adoption in order to um, get that kind of ecosystem effect that uh, that you're talking about so and sometimes that can be you know a combination of um, you know getting participants to join that platform um, and sometimes um, it's about you know the scope of that platform or, or that use case being increased so that participants can see significant benefit it benefits and then Back to the last question, you know, sometimes it's a, you know, you, you're never going to see significant growth in that particular um, example and, unless you kind of grow the ecosystem and you start to interoperate with um, with other platforms. So, you know, you see you see a lot of, you know, um, announcements about people having issued a, a digital bond, for example, but, you know, unless that bond can, um, you know, settle across systems be used as collateral be used as repo etc then um you know it, it's a kind of interesting um experiment but so what um you, you need to be able to and it and i don't say that in a flippant way I, I i mean you know it's it's a significant um uh, step forward 
but you know until you start you know joining the ecosystems together um, and creating something you know new and transformational um, then it's hard to see how um, the benefit of this new technology will be um, brought to bear across the industry I'm going to ask you in a minute about voluntary carbon credit markets so I know that's a, a particular interest of yours but before we before I do before we leave the securities markets could I just bring up uh, something I found very interesting in the Nasdaq value exchange survey which is that an awful lot of the, the blockchain innovation dollars which it identified have been going into the bond markets you've raised that um, a couple of times in, in this conversation you've got a client in in, in the shape of the Chilean um, CSD actually doing something in the area but it seems to me a lot of um, a lot of investment has gone into tokenizing the bond markets for to, to crudely summarize it without really changing that much and without um, I know a lot of the dollars have gone into the primary market but nothing much seems to have changed we don't seem to be getting the market participants excited about it at least one um, interesting venture in the sphere is actually no longer with us so some of these initiatives have, have, have failed others are not succeeding as as people had hoped what's really going on in applying blockchain to the bond markets do you think i think I, honestly i think people start with bonds because they're easier than equities um so um but i think look you need to look at this through a, a kind of long-term lens um and the same goes for cloud um within financial markets you know uh, digitization, tokenization, using blockchain um, plus cloud are—you um, could call them mega trends within within the industry. Um, and so, those in the industry that are making themselves ready and putting themselves in a better kind of position in order to capture future opportunities, um, I think, are perhaps being very wise. Um, and DCB is, is, is a great example, the, the Chilean CSD, um, where they're using um, our technology to allow them to um, digitize um, securities um, whilst continuing to service their traditional market. So that's you know great positioning from them because um, as these things do evolve and you know you have to kind of like think about these these trends and it, it is a trend and you know some some people would say we're at a tipping point um, um, and you know for, for mass adoption uh, I'm not sure we're in a tipping point just yet but you know those people that have positioned themselves to start exploring taking advantage of this technology um, building their competence internally starting to introduce it into elements of their technology stack, I think are positioning themselves much better than those that um, are doing nothing in this space. Talking of, of DCV, I'd like to ask you about uh, CSDs and tokenization more generally, but I also promised I'd ask you about the voluntary carbon credit market. So, so I'll do that first. Is there a way in which tokenization can help the development of the voluntary carbon credit markets they've acquired this reputation of being a bit of a wild west without much reliable infrastructure and, and data services but do you see tokenization being able to help the market um grow and uh, and become more sophisticated well, I, th I think um you know the, the reputation um uh, as being wild west is uh, a little overblown and there's certainly a lot of um initiatives um around you know ensuring integrity in the in the carbon markets um um but 
we've been working on um, a carbon token taxonomy um, with the help of the um, Interwork Alliance. So we've created a taxonomy which will allow um, the creation of um, carbon tokens um, across the very, you know, very many uh, different types of, of, of carbon credits um, that are around and, and issued at the moment. But you know, ultimately, the truth is that carbon credits don't need to be tokenized. There are many carbon uh, registries that work relatively well as they are at the moment without working on um, you know, tokenized carbon uh, platforms. But, but, but going back to the, the, the point I made previously, I mean, the key is flexibility. And if you can use um, smart contracts um, for sure, um, then the customer decides whether or not um, to actually tokenize the asset by using DLT and putting it on a blockchain. Um, and, I, and I think when it comes to carbon credits, there is, you know, because it's a new asset class, people kind of say, okay, new asset class, new technology, um, carbon credit therefore must be tokenized. And I don't think that's the case. Um, but at the same time, um, with the technology that we're building, we're ready to be able to handle it in a, in a tokenized form if um, the business case and if the particular carbon registry entity that we're dealing with wants to do it that way. Um, so again, it's just down to choice and in, in deploying the technology in a flexible way. Mm -hmm. Back to back to, to CSDs. Uh, DCB is obviously one of about 150 odd CSDs around the world. You, you've got CSDs inside the, the NASDAQ group itself. Which areas do you see uh, CSDs when they look at the kind of things they do? They, they do issuance, they do settlement, they do custody, they do asset servicing. Which areas do you detect CSDs looking to focus their tokenization investments on? Um, I think it starts with issuance um, uh, because that's the uh, the area for um, CSDs which is least disruptive. So we see um, examples of uh, issuance of the token um, and then effectively um, reflecting the issuance of the token back into the traditional CSD world um, onto the individual accounts of um, account holders. Um, so that's a good place to start. Seems a sensible you know, least risky place to start for me. Um, and then we can we can imagine that, you know, after competence is built, after the market has gotten used to the way in which that is done, you start to venture into the kind of the real core, um, you know, CSD um, uh, functions like, uh, like settlement, like corporate actions, et cetera. But you know, like I said before, that's that starts to become the more complex part. Um, and then there are questions of, you know, making sure that you're doing this in a way that's safe and resilient and in a way that your market participants are going to um, accept um, and encourage um, if possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned before, I think uh, issuance is a good place to start. And we see other, we see other, um, CSDs and ICSDs taking that same approach, and it seems to be to be a sensible way of doing it. One way of measuring the competence level of, of CSDs is something you brought up earlier about whether people want to run one node or multiple nodes, or whether they want to run any nodes at all, or have have somebody do it for them. Do you detect CSDs already now to start managing their own nodes on blockchain networks? I, I think CSDs are ready. I'm not sure that uh, market the customers are uh, ready. Um, 
you know, I, I um, in conversations that I have, I, I see um, uh, little appetite for um, customers to um, adopt their own node and, and perhaps kind of, um, you know, take that node into their own data center, for example. Um, I think from a from a business operations technical point of view, it it, it, it it's complex, um, and you know it, it, it is transformational in your back office systems, and often these back office systems, if you're if you're a you know a, a sub custodian, you'll often be a sub custodian in many different markets, um, and so perhaps you know one market changing to a whole a whole new way of operating is um, uh, very dis disruptive for your, for your system. So. Um, uh, and not to mention the cost. So, um, you know, often the cost can be a, a prohibitor here. So I think um, uh, what's more likely is that, you know, CSDs can distribute nodes that they have within their own data center for participants and participants just API into um, nodes that are either, you know, nodes set aside for particular parts of the industry, you know, maybe one node for custodians, one node for brokers or something like that, or or you just have a, or you just have a single node, and you know, when it comes to CSDs, you know, these are highly regulated, trusted entities, um, and so you know, bef before you go down that road, you you've got to question whether or not um, a, a, a node topology which is highly distributed is really necessary. Um, but at the same time, um, that can unlock um, you know quite significant benefits in terms of. You know, eliminating reconciliation, um, uh, streamlining processes, and whatnot. So it's 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 often a a case of pros and cons, and, and and coming into coming at it from that way. We've covered a lot of ground. I have one final question for you before we let you go, Gerald. Which is, what do you think will be the chief characteristics of the successful financial market infrastructure of the future? By which I mean maybe twenty thirty. Uh, a difficult question, but uh, I think if you consider global post-trade infrastructure remains on legacy systems, legacy ar architectures, some of which are more than 20 years old and increasingly um, they're patched together, um, com you know, complex web of financial market infrastructures um, and other intermediaries. Um, then if you marry that with the view that we're on 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 the verge of you know something transformational um it, when we think about um blockchain and dlt and the way that the industry operates in, in that sense um and, and bringing into that the equation kind of like new revenue opportunities plus financial pressures and, and regulatory pressures um i think those people that kind of start to embrace um new and perhaps disrupted technologies will ultimately become um, the leaders of the new kind of like ecosystem um, providers. Um, so I, I, I think of it that way. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of ground to cover, I think, before we move into um, you know, 2030s, looking, looking like all financial market infrastructures are highly distributed and um, highly streamlined. There's a long way to go, but um, I think, uh, the, the path is clear, um, FMIs and their participants uh, need to embark on uh, transformation journeys um, and NASDAQ's here to help.
Gerald Smith, thank you very much for taking the time to share your experience, your knowledge and your ideas with the members of Future of Finance. Thank you, Dominic. It's been good.